It's Friday, July 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Ghislaine Maxwell, the longtime associate and accused madam for Jeffrey Epstein, has been arrested on charges that she recruited and groomed underage girls for abuse by Epstein. The charges say that Maxwell would try and befriend the young girls and normalize the abuse by discussing sexual topics and prompting them to give Epstein massages. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, the 4th of July will not be the same this year as various states are closing down beaches, bars and restaurants, and shutting down fireworks displays in response to rising COVID-19 cases. Officials are targeting places that younger people tend to congregate, as the rise in cases are affecting more people in their 20s and 30s. Rachel Adams Hurd, reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for how more young Americans are getting the coronavirus. Finally, the country is facing three simultaneous disasters, the pandemic, the economic fallout from that, and civil unrest in response to police brutality. Many people are responding the only way they know how, with anger. Elizabeth Chang, wellness editor at The Washington Post, joins us with tips to get out of the anger incubator we are living in. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Today, we announced the arrest of one of the villains in this investigation. Early this morning, Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested in Bradford, New Hampshire, by FBI special agents and NYPD detectives from the FBI NYPD Crimes Against Children Task Force. Joining us now is Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Devlin. Sure. Thanks for having me. Ghislaine Maxwell, she's the former girlfriend and accused madam for Jeffrey Epstein. She was just arrested and is facing six federal charges after being arrested in uh, New Hampshire. This is kind of a continuation of the Jeffrey Epstein story when that happened just about a year ago when he was arrested and then he committed suicide. There was a call for all of his co-conspirators to also face charges. And Ghislaine Maxwell, her name popped up right away, but it took so long for authorities to actually arrest her. Devlin, tell us a little bit more about this story. So when Jeffrey Epstein hung himself last year, a lot of his victims felt it was another way of him cheating justice. And they feared that it would help some of his associates like Jelaine Maxwell also cheat justice. But what the indictment unsealed today shows is that prosecutors kept at it and they have compiled accounts of three former victims who say that Jelaine Maxwell essentially helped recruit and groom these young girls, frankly, to be abused sexually by Jeffrey Epstein, who was at the time, back in the 90s, dating Joanne Maxwell. According to the papers that we have in from court, they said that this was beginning in at least 1994 to about 1997 or so, at least where these charges are kind of centered on. And what did they describe? How did Maxwell help groom the victims for Jeffrey Epstein? Well, she befriended them. You know, in one instance, Epstein arranged for a young girl to fly out to New Mexico where he had a home. And Maxwell and Epstein then took her out to a movie and took her shopping. And, and, you know, they would basically try to be friends with these young girls. And then, as has been alleged in other cases filed against Epstein, they would begin this pretty twisted practice of essentially enticing the girls to give Epstein massages in various states of undress. And then that behavior would eventually escalate into just straight up sexual abuse. 
The papers also said that Maxwell would try to normalize some of this abuse by discussing sexual topics. She would undress in front of the victims also and be present for some of this stuff. So this is all kind of a way to, I guess, acclimate them to it so that Jeffrey Epstein could do what he wanted to do. There was also some uh, charges of perjury against Maxwell. Where did those come from? So one of the things that happened, I mean, remember that the Jeffrey Epstein saga is like a 20 year unbelievable adventure through the legal system, basically. And what happened in 2016 was Ghislaine Maxwell was deposed, questioned by a lawyer for one of Epstein's alleged victims. And not surprisingly, she got a lot of questions about, did she ever see Epstein abusing young girls? Did she ever know of what Epstein was doing with these young girls? Was she aware of any of this massages with young girls going on? And she just denied it all. So when you do that in a deposition in a lawsuit, you expose yourself to a possible perjury charge. And that's what she is charged with now, because prosecutors say those denials were lies because they have witnesses saying that they saw her do those things. That part of it in Florida, that's where Jeffrey Epstein got that quote unquote sweetheart deal, where I think he only went to jail for about 13 months, but he was in this weird work release program where he was able to leave jail through various points throughout the day. One of the things that people find so infuriating about the Epstein case is he was caught once before, and he seems to have used his money and his influence and his power to essentially get an incredibly sweet deal out of it, meaning he got a jail sentence that wasn't really about going to jail. He was allowed to go to his office and work, and he had basically his own private security, you know, basically stand around him when he did have to go to sleep in the jail. But also as part of that deal, people forget as part of that deal, Florida prosecutors agreed not to pursue cases against anyone who helped him find and abuse these girls. And so today is another way in which the charges against Ghislaine Maxwell is another way in which the Justice Department is saying that was done wrongly the first time. And we are going to try to fix that egregious error. How did they eventually catch up with her? Because as I mentioned earlier, there was this kind of hunt for her. People were trying to keep an eye out for her. I think prosecutors said that she slithered away to a gorgeous property in New Hampshire. So how did they eventually catch up with her this time around? So I think her whereabouts have been far more of a mystery to the public than they have been to the FBI. What officials said today was essentially, well, we more or less always knew where she was because we're investigating her. We have to know that. And obviously, she has dual citizenship. There's a lot of things that they would have to be concerned about with someone with her wealth and you know ability to move out of the country. So I think investigators, my understanding is investigators have long known where she was and were just putting their case together. And they finally decided to take the move today. What happens next? What kind of time is she facing with these charges? It could be decades in prison if she's convicted of all these charges. So in the federal system, any sex crime charges tend to carry particularly tough sentences. Obviously, the case against her involves multiple victims and multiple incidents. So you will have to see how that evidence plays out in court if she decides to go to trial or if she takes a guilty plea. We just don't know yet. But she's facing an incredible amount of time and prosecutors are already arguing that she should not get bail because of how much time she faces and because they're worried she might flee the country if she's given bail. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll take these, worn by everybody in the coming days, 
to make sure that we will protect those lives and we will slow the spread of COVID-19. Joining us now is Rachel Adams Hurd, reporter for Bloomberg News based in Houston. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about the spread of coronavirus right now ahead of the 4th of July weekend. It's going to be a very different 4th of July for a lot of people. There's various states that are closing down beaches. They're closing down bars and restaurants. They're shutting down fireworks displays. All of this is in response to the rising COVID-19 cases. And they're targeting places that a lot of younger people tend to congregate, such as the bars. I know that's a huge thing going on in Texas right now. There's some lawsuits filed about that, the bar closures. But it's because that younger people are more involved in this current spread right now. There's a lot of people in their 20s and 30s that are filling up hospital rooms as well. Rachel, tell us about this. So what we're seeing is in these cities and states that are emerging as hotspots. So Arizona, Alabama, parts of Florida and Texas, half or more of cases are young adults. In some of these areas where they have more built out contact tracing, they're able to go back and see that a lot of those cases came from people who had been in group social settings, um, in many cases, bars. And I think Madison, Wisconsin and the surrounding county is a really interesting example of this because yesterday they closed bars following a surge in cases and they looked back at roughly two weeks in June and 614 people in the county had tested positive. Almost half of them were ages 18 to 25. And of those cases, 132 people traced their infection to bars. You know, a lot of experts are saying there's just a complete pandemic burnout right now. After shutting down for three whole months, people are ready to get back out. And then there's a lot of things that go into it. There's that the states, everybody thinks now we're starting to reopen a little too early. Obviously, there was unrest throughout the country and people were protesting and people kind of forgot about the pandemic for a quick moment during that. So people were getting out and about. Yeah, and I think that the message for young people, I mean, like you said, they can certainly get extremely ill, but they're far less likely to die than seniors. And, and so the message had been to stay home for your loved ones. And I think now the struggle for health officials is that it didn't seem like that message worked when cities and states started reopening. So now you have epidemiologists who are really stressing masks and keeping gatherings very small and limited to a tiny group of people and, if possible, to keep it outdoors. It was pretty remarkable. Texas Governor Greg Abbott in the last hour signed an executive order requiring Texans to wear masks. And that was a pretty big shock because he had previously blocked mayors from making that same requirement. So I'd be surprised if we don't see more of that in the coming days and weeks as cases and, in some cases, even deaths rise. In speaking to people that you, I noticed in your piece, they were saying that a lot of times these messages don't sink in until someone you know gets it. That might be another reason why young people are just so out and about partying like they were like normal. There's still a lot of people in the country who have not gotten this, and this might be another reason why they're just not getting it. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, you also had just this false sense of security. I think when people realized that their neighborhood bar or a club down the street had opened, that it was safe to do that. And in some cases, you get the message driven home when you hear that someone you care about gets really ill. But a lot of times, if you're asymptomatic, you may not even know that you're carrying it and that, and that you're responsible for some of the spread. But what we'll see in the overall numbers and, and what health officials are so worried about is maybe deaths aren't reflecting the surge in young people so far. But as it spreads to older populations and more vulnerable populations, that those numbers will start showing up in the next few weeks. One of the other things I noted in your piece, too, speaking to public health officials on ways that can help prevent some of this lockdown burnout is to tell people about risk reduction. How is that working? 
At first, it seemed, you know, back in the Tiger King days when everyone was stuck on their couch and just ordering takeout and keeping it within their family, that that worked, but that it wasn't maybe sustainable for the long run. And so these epidemiologists, they realize that people aren't going to be able to just hold themselves up in their rooms indefinitely until there's a vaccine. So what they're talking about is coming up with kind of an inner circle of a handful of people and you all commit to being on the same page of limiting your interactions to each other. And when you do hang out, that you do it in an outdoor setting because we know that you're far less likely to contract COVID-19 in outdoor environments. And if you have to come into closer contact, that you're wearing a mask consistently. And in pursuing those types of social interactions, versus going to a crowded bar or even an indoor restaurant. I mean, the hard part about that is everybody getting to play by the same rules. So that's the difficulty there. And I just know that a lot of health experts are really concerned about this 4th of July weekend. A lot of people are going to be getting together with family and friends. If your town is having some type of social gatherings, that's another potential moment for spread. So I know that experts are worried about this weekend and seeing a surge following this. Yeah, definitely. And I think also uh, kind of people are, have a little bit of PTSD from Memorial Day weekend. And being from Houston, the video of a nightclub in our city went viral because it was crowded as soon as bars were allowed to open and clearly defined the capacity limits. And clearly Houston is getting hit particularly hard right now. We don't know that that's because of that exact situation. But I think that there is fear that that holiday weekend in a lot of places where you're still able to go to bars or even indoor house parties, which is very hard to crack down on, that that will result in cases that will start to show up in the numbers in mid-July. Rachel Adams-Hurd, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And then on top of that, you have disagreements about whether people should wear masks or not. And then on top of that, you have disagreements about what's going on in terms of police violence and police brutality and people who are protesting and counter-protesting. And there just seems to be endless opportunity for people to be upset. Joining us now is Elizabeth Chang, wellness editor at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Right now, the country is going through three major things. Obviously, the coronavirus pandemic. We're also going through the economic fallout resulting from the pandemic. And then all the civil unrest, people protesting police brutality and things like that. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the country. And right now, Americans are angry. A lot of Americans are angry at a number of different things. And Elizabeth, you wrote an article about how this anger is manifesting right now and tips on how to regulate that anger. In the article, you said that we're living in an anger incubator. Explain that for us. Well, with these three disasters that you listed before, there's just so much going on that people are angry about, whether it's losing a job, losing a loved one, losing money. And then on top of that, you have disagreements about whether people should wear masks or not. And then on top of that, you have disagreements about what's going on in terms of police violence and police brutality and people who are protesting and counter-protesting. And there just seems to be endless opportunity for people to be upset. There's two sides to anger also. You know, it helps us resolve uncertainty that we have our other feelings. You know, it gives us kind of this definite mode to be in. But anger could also be a problem. It's unhealthy for us. And then, you know, if it manifests itself into 
anger against other people. I mean, all you got to do is just Google something about face masks and you'll see tons of people yelling at each other back and forth about wearing face masks. Mm -hmm. So that's where anger could become a problem. Well, it can affect your health. It can give you headaches, digestive disorders, insomnia, high blood pressure, stroke. It can contribute to drug and alcohol problems. You mentioned taking it out on other people and there have been increases in calls to domestic abuse hotline and there have been fewer reports and calls to people who protect children because people are not seeing children right now. They aren't in school. They often aren't going to the doctor as much. So the people who usually would report that, the teachers and the doctors, are not reporting that. But on the other hand, when kids do wind up in the emergency room, apparently, they are showing up with more serious injury. So you really want to, for your own sake and for the sake of others, you want to do your best to regulate this anger. So how do we take ourselves out of this anger incubator? What do the experts say we should be doing to flip that? One of the experts, he had three of what he called antidotes to anger, and he called them appreciation, affiliation, and aspiration. So appreciation means kind of ignoring the stuff that's making you mad, but looking at the stuff that contributes to your life in a positive way. And affiliation means ensuring that your connections are there and that you're nurturing your relationships. And aspiration means you're looking higher to something that you want to accomplish, something bigger than yourself or something that serves other people. Another one, and this is pretty tough to do, is limiting media exposure. And it's just so tough because it's so pervasive around us. I mean, it's on our phones, it's on the TV, it's on the radio. Everywhere you look, you're kind of being bombarded with something. So this was a really tough one, but I definitely do agree this could help because you're kind of limiting all that bad stuff that's coming into you. I think that it definitely could help, and I'm in the media industry. Um, Exactly, same here. But I think that people need to take a break from it. And one of the experts suggested, like, doing it for, set a timer. Say, okay, I need to check in on the news, and I'm going to do it for 15 minutes or half an hour just to find out what's going on. And then when the timer goes off, just leave it. And also he said, you know, be intentional about what you're looking for. You know, if you're just looking for, you know, an update on the number of coronavirus cases, look for that and don't go down another rabbit hole of some political person saying one thing to someone else. And, you know, before you know it, you've read 20 stories and you're, you're angry again. Another couple of things to do is dealing with the heightened energy of being angry and distracting yourself. One of the things that you mentioned here from some of the experts is hitting that punching bag, things like that. While it could be a stress reliever in some ways, it doesn't really take away that heightened sense of anger sometimes. So doing something calming and, and as I said, distracting yourself, those things can help out. And I think one of the good phrases that one of the people had was do something that's incompatible with anger and aggression. So go pet your cat or something. Go see a baby. Put yourself in a position where it's just completely incompatible with that kind of feeling. And I thought that was a really good way to put it. Elizabeth Chang, wellness editor at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great holiday weekend. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.